So ladies and gentlemen, very excited to have you on the show, Mike Belshi, CEO and co-founder of BitGo. We've got a lot to unpack. I'm, I'm excited to just, I think the last time we had you on was, I mean, it feels like it must have been a year ago. So there's a lot to catch up on. It's definitely an interesting time in crypto. I, I keep getting like a form of deja vu. We're getting the, you know, the institutions are coming back as they were. I actually write about this in my newsletter tomorrow. Um, we see EDX, we see BlackRock with its ETF um, proposal. It almost reminds me of 2018 when Fidelity, Arisex, and Back were making moves and everybody was getting super excited. How do you feel about the market right now? Are you getting a bit of deja vu or does something feel different? <laughs> um, by the way, thank you for having me, Frank. We go way back, right? I, I don't remember when we first met, but you've been covering the space for a long time and, and, and thank you for doing that. Um, so yeah, there is there is a bit of deja vu there. Um, I, I do think it's different this time. I, th I think the regulatory um, oversight or you know action that's happening, even though it creates a lot of uncertainty, um, is an absolute prerequisite to really plumb digital assets across the globe. Um, the U.S. approach has been, I think, surprising, but in some ways not really that surprising, right? If you, if you dial the clock all the way back to 2013 and 2014, as people were thinking about the evolution of Bitcoin, you know, mostly at the time, and digital assets more broadly, uh, you know, this expectation that sooner or later you would have a collision with the government um, of course, makes sense. Um, now, the U.S. has the most stable markets in the world. It's why it is the global leader um, in terms of the largest, uh, most trusted markets that can bring both, you know, domestic monies and international monies together to trade. Um, so it's got a higher bar than than others do, and it's no surprise that um, kind of. Figuring out how to fit these two things together is going to be somewhat complicated. I also have a little bit of you know pessimistic side on some of it. You know, look, it it's still going to take a long time. Uh, by the way, you left off some international banks, right? So Deutsche Bank also announced this week, and then a flurry of others. Um, but you know, look, it's great that those participants may be coming closer. Um, we'll we'll see what happens. I still think that some of the legislative and regulatory changes that have been proposed. Um, need to sort through. And then, you know, the traditional institutions, they move, you know, fairly slowly. They'll start with Bitcoin. They might touch a little bit of Ether. You know, they're going to start with a very limited offering. Um, in terms of, like, really where we see true radical change in the financial system with better transparency, with having everyone have an equal playing field, equal access, that's going to take a little bit more time. But um, anyway, yes, this prerequisite step. So it's great overall. So, Mike, do you fall into the uh, conspiratorial camp that all of this is orchestrated? Gary Gensler is taking on your rivals of Coinbase to a lesser extent, Binance, not necessarily a rival there, in order to lay the foundation for Wall Street, Ken and Co., or Larry and Co., to take over crypto? Or is this just a coincidence? Look, I think uh, I think there's a lot of coordination that's happening that leads to that outcome. Um, so uh, I think it's a little bit less specific of let's take it away from these guys and give it to those guys. But the natural byproduct of the well-orchestrated, you know, federal um, 
uh, actions against crypto companies uh, in their current form, uh, the natural byproduct is that there's a bunch of people ready to just pick up the ball and they actually see an opportunity. So remember, if you're in a traditional finance firm, you've always had this dilemma, right? You've got non-crypto digital asset product, which you make billions of dollars on, and you understand the risk of that and you manage that business. You've been doing it for decades. Along comes this new innovative thing and the revenue that you can make on it is pretty small. The existing players are doing pretty well. Like even if you make a little bit of inroad into it, you know how far you're going to get. Oh, and on the other side, massive regulatory uncertainty where you could be facing you know significant downside if things don't go right. And then if you look at today's climate, well, wait, what happened? Not only uh, is there uh, a clear push towards those traditional firms, and we're going to let you do it. Um, in, on top of that, there's a smackdown on the leading firms that have been doing it so far, which means they're going to basically lose it, and that creates opportunity for you. So I think it's a little bit less coordinated than like this perfect, like you know, um, Mr. Burns figuring things out behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of a natu natural product. The the traditional firms are looking for the time where the risk reward trade off entering into digital assets makes sense for them. I'm not going to let you bait me, um, Belshi, into comparing or liking Chairman Gensler to Mr. Burns, but uh, I'll leave the audience to uh, make hey, their I own. I didn't say Gary Gensler at all. <laughs> I was talking about conspiracy, like somebody pulling the puppet strings behind the scenes. But Maybe um, I'm just thinking, maybe everyone uh, interpreted. it might be my own interpretation. <laughs> we might have to cut that. I don't want him coming after me. Um, so... Where does where does that uh, position bit go then? Right, you're not getting slammed by regulators at least yet, or not that I've seen, and you're not necessarily, um, you know, a a incumbent traditional financial player, um, and and you haven't gone bankrupt like uh, you know half the space did last year. So it's it's a kind of um, gruff way of asking a question of of how's business. Well, let me be very clear. We haven't had any any regulatory actions against us uh, at all, kind of in this wake of stuff. So um, I think that's a byproduct of, of two things. A, the part of the space that we've been at, uh, existing in, in, in custody and technology, is just different from the trading space. Um, and then second, you know, the way we've approached it has been a you know regulatory first, compliance first. Um, so we've got actually a very clean business. And I think, you know, the Bitco brand is known for having kind of taken the kind of the right path. Um, we're still huge advocates of, you know, decentralized technology. And this is where, you know, Bitco's product line is actually uh, incredibly unique. So, you know, people forget we have, you know, the largest decentralized wallet platform on the planet. Um, and that's through this multi-sig, you know, it's now got MPC and, and threshold signatures in it as well. But that's through this non-custodial um, you know, wallet platform that people use and embed behind the scenes in their businesses all over the world. That's just software and hardware. There's there's no financial services in that. The second part of our business is what we're more known for these days because it's a harder lift. But this is, you know, qualified custody in the United States and abroad. And qualified custody is becoming, of course, more and more important, especially as you start to think about how trading and markets should evolve and provide the appropriate safety to investors. So that part of our business has been growing. That part, you know, we find ourselves in some alignment with, you know, 
regulators, including Mr. Gensler, where, you know, should we separate trading uh, away from custody? I mean, the, the answer is obvious. Of course we should. The real debate is about how do you do that? You know, how do you go about taking the existing crypto ecosystem, which of course didn't have that, and it makes sense why it didn't have that. We can go into detail on that if you want. But um, how, do you, how do you evolve that into something that's safer and yet still keeps the ethos of what is digital assets? How do we keep innovation continuing to fly you know, kind of in the, in this world. So, um, yeah, business is pretty good for us, and I think uh, you're gonna you're gonna hear in the coming weeks and months uh, about where Bitco is providing service to some of those bigger names that that you've already mentioned. One thing that was interesting in the suit, um, or or the multiple suits against Binance and Coinbase, was not just the fact that they're you know calling out during different assets um, as, as securities. But the crux of it, in my opinion, or at least the core of this of this case is in the in the market structure of the exchanges as they operate in this integrated model that's different from traditional finance. Was that surprising to you? And you know, ultimately, um, I mean, this has kind of been the direction most firms have been going in, right? Like most firms, including BitGo, have wanted to be multiple different things from custody to exchange to trading, lending, and, and prime brokerage. Does this make you reconsider certain businesses that BitGo can be in? Um, I'm not sure if it's reconsider, but I think the evolution is starting to shift in a better way, actually, where... You, know, you figure out where is the risk taking and where is not. So we can start with an extreme, right? So FTX had two very different businesses. One was called Alameda, prop trader, hedge fund, whatever. Take all the risks you want over there. Um, that's allowed and encouraged. The other side is FTX, the exchange, which is part of trading in markets. And if we're going to build reliable markets, we have to have really well understood risks. So you, you don't want to see exchanges, broker dealers, custodians, clearing houses, Taking risks of you know principal assets, things like that, that, that that are out of out of bounds from what those businesses are intended to operate. Um, it doesn't mean that there's no risk. Of course, there's risk, but um, it's a, a very understood and defined risk. And by separating those roles, you get um, some checks and balances between the various parties. Now, of course, SBF stole the funds and then like completely blurred the lines, and that's why that thing blew up. So it's quite obvious that we need to have when it comes to trading in markets well understood risks and and as a custodian primarily as a technology provider um, you know our risks are on the low side and i think that's why you know when people look at parts of the ecosystem to participate in bitgo comes across really strong in a few minutes i could talk to you about you know what we've what we're just launching right now with our go network our off exchange settlement you know component which really adds a huge amount of horsepower to this but we'll come back to that later the um, uh, the, the second part of your question of does it make us re reconsider certain risks, like thinking about prime brokerage and things like that? Um, to some degree, yes. Uh, you know, the market needs to kind of separate and strata and define where the risks are and where they aren't. Um, and uh, although I wouldn't say that Bitco is is never kind of there, the 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 the, the year twenty twenty two highlighted 
that the existing crypto market structure simply can't sustain any type of reasonable prime brokerage. It doesn't matter who's doing it. Um, so what I'm talking about here is, you know, when you're talking about prime brokerage, you know, mostly it's about trading. It's about, you know, getting leverage. It's about um, being able to access all of the markets. And with the way that the we have these pre-funded exchanges all over the planet, and you have to take capital put it at each of those. There's no prime broker in the world that can define the risk around doing this. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of capital that needs to be distributed across exchanges all over the planet in order to provide a good pr prime broker system. And the people that you're trading with, you know, you might know who they are, but you don't know the quality of where they're trading. So without this settlement layer, which I just referred to, you simply can't build a well-understood risk model for prime brokerage. It can't be done. Um, and so that's that's where I think the rethinking is. And then as we build that layer, um, and be happy to talk about that more about what that means, then all of a sudden prime brokerages can take off. And I think they can come, off, come, come, come to market in a much more competitive way where they're competing with each other, providing different levels of service. Each one of them is able to contain the risk in a much uh, safer way for investors. And now we can really build forward. 2022 said, the entire market is not ready for prime brokerage. Mm -hmm. So I, I imagine that that sort of aspect of Bitco's business has been sunset or repositioned to maybe um, serve this new Bitco Go um, business line. Well, to some degree. So, you know, prime brokerage for us has been a directional thing. So we weren't really providing prime brokerage. What we were doing is starting to pr provide some lending and borrowing mm -hmm. components. Um, of course, we had some trading components. We, we were not an exchange ourselves. We just help our clients connect to other exchanges. Um, but what it really comes down to is how do you how do you fund that activity uh, and settle that activity in, in a safe way? The lending market has completely dried up across the ecosystem. Like there's nobody that's doing lending. These days, the lending that's being done is on a very uh, limited basis. Is Bitco yeah, still lending? Yeah, but it's 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 really small. It's really for my, it's for a very different purpose. And it's, you know, two to three percent. Frank needs to just get to the end of the month, calls up Mike, hey. No, not going to work. I can yeah, give can you a, a Mike is collateral. Mike is collateral. No, but it's, it's completely, it's, it's basically, why do you think it's dried up so much to this extent? Well, it's exactly this. If you don't know where the risks in the market are, um, then you know you really have to kind of take a step back. Look, I think all of the participants knew that there were big risks, and I think that they were seeing them, but getting stung by FTX. Every one of the prime brokerage, prime brokers got stung. Every one of the market makers got stung. Everybody was there. Um, by the way, Bitco wasn't there, um, but that's because we we're not heavy in that trading component, so we didn't have any exposure on on uh, FTX exchange. The um, but this this burn that happened, you know, everybody's like, okay, wait a minute, is this going to be a scalable business? How do we make it a scalable business? And they're having to go back and rethink how they're going to how they're going to address the market again. So. Um, when you don't know where the counterparty failures are, um, it causes everybody to retreat. Look, this week, and, and I don't know the full details of it, we just heard about Abra um, you know, potentially blowing up. And that, I guess, it dates back to last year, right? Um, so they went, if what Texas said is true, they went insolvent last year and nobody's known for a year. Um, how, how, do you, how do you interact with a company that's in, in that state. And 
I think this is a, a an interesting dilemma that you know the crypto industry needs to think about and think about from you know how does a regulator you know help or not help. Um, you know, in general, I think business helps more than, than regulators do. But okay, um, you're getting at so- you're getting at something really interesting here, which I think is like the unique aspects or characteristics of crypto that can result in a crisis like this that is so obfuscated, which is ironic, right? Because crypto is supposed to be transparent. How, as a market in mass, has so much been able to be swept under the rug to the point where, to your point, potentially, allegedly, a company can be secretly insolvent for a year? Yeah. So I, first off, I think there's a lot of different types of failures and you have to kind of break them apart. So one is you've got like frauds that happen like SBF, right? Um, the other ones that you have is risk exposures, which actually is like, where are your assets and liabilities? So that latter camp, you know, if we let this industry grow in a mature way, you can have assets tokenized, liabilities tokenized, and you can have a very public exactly what types of exposure are in place. With a little bit better market structure, you can now have, you know, custodians that are holding assets. You can point to those assets. You can have someone attest to those assets. You know, so we can build safety around that, and the the blockchain component makes it better than we've ever seen before. The other side of fraud, look, regulators can't completely stop fraud. They, they have always struggled with this, you know, and of course, Bernie Madoff was another great example of, you know, bad guys are out there trying to figure out how to work the system and sometimes they figure it out. And it's almost no matter how many controls you put in place, there'll be another fraud in the future, right? And we know that. that so the, the regulator's job is to try to help put in guardrails that prevent it. But, you know, as time and technology evolves, you know, think, things will happen. But here's what I think with this insolvency thing is an issue. The, the folks that participated in digital assets early, of course, were small companies by definition. They don't have huge balance sheets, right? They're startups. They're innovators. Um, and their tolerance of a mistake can't be absorbed onto, onto the balance sheet easily. Now, traditional finance has gone centralized and more centralized. And heck, we see it even just this year with banking failures getting sucked into the big JP Morgan, who just gets bigger and bigger. Right. So when you just got these big giant banks, you know, the good news there is that, you know, they can take a few blows, even multi-billion dollar, you know, fines from from OPEC and and survive. Um, They're so large that uh, failure um, that would actually take them down like a Lehman Brothers doesn't come along that often. So Mm -hmm. centralization is bad. The transparency doesn't take it doesn't take a small venture back startup to get blown out. Right. Doesn't take that much. And, well, and one last thing, though, those large companies, for the most part, are public companies at this point. They're so big, they've graduated to the, the public market. So there's a few exceptions, like Fidelity, right? Um, but mostly they're public companies, which means they have public balance sheets and public financials that are going out. All right, when a failure happens to a small company, um, if it's a private company, you know, there, there, there isn't a public set of financials for it. Now, I'm definitely not advocating for the idea that every small company, every, that you know, private company needs to suddenly have public company standards. But you do have to recognize that like, huh, when you've got a financial institution that's relatively small with a relatively small balance sheet, um, you know, how do investors know if that thing had trouble? And will the owners of it do the right thing when they run into trouble and tell the world? So like if you do go insolvent and you're a startup, 
and you're just running, a, I'm sorry, a technology company or whatever. Okay, look, if you can figure out how to get your employees to stay on board and people to keep paying your for your software, it, it's kind of it's not really a harm or a foul. It's not great, but it's not bad. When it comes to financial institution, though, it's a different game, right? So when you go insolvent, if you continue to take other people's money. Well, now that's fraud, right? Because they're investing with you in a financial institution and you're supposed to be you know, handling that uh, in a fiduciary way. So this is a very different case. All right, so I think when it comes back to like, where is the appropriate regulation and what should be happening here? There's some amount of transparency with balance sheets and financials that you know, may be necessary that may not exist for relatively small firms. And I think the SEC and other regulators haven't necessarily had to deal with this case in the past because Heck, for the last 30 years, every company that they regulate has already graduated into the hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars of size. So it's, they can take some hits um, to their business without being a complete fail. Um, so I know it's an interesting dilemma. And the challenge is that, again, if you try to shoehorn everything into regulation first, what you're going to do is you're going to squash innovation. You're going to give it all back to the incumbents. And, you know, blockchains will be gone because the incumbents, they'll be like, hey, we make more money doing it the old way. Like, why would we try to change? Um, and uh, those of us using, using the financial system will be kind of pawns again to a few large players. So the crux of the argument here is, is that it was less about, the crisis was less about the nature of the asset class or the assets themselves, but more about the level of immaturity of, of the sort of market participants that existed in the market. Um, what needs to occur, what needs to change in the market structure to get us to a point where there's liquidity, where there's, where there's sort of trust back in the system for folks to engage, counterparties to engage, and for even just you know lending to um, make a comeback? And how does BitGo play a role in that? Well, let's see. In terms of market structure, um, I think it's going to be a, an evolution over time. The idea that there's going to be one single silver bullet, right? Here's the legislation ready to go, and now everything's uh, clear. You know, it's not going to be like that. We have a, a very different asset class. We've got a set of tokens which can't be shoehorned into the old definition of security. They actually are different. Yes, they've got overlap with security sometimes, that's true, but they also have overlap with utility. And this is just a new thing. So we have to come up with new definitions for it. Additionally, they can be created very quickly. This idea that you know you have to go through an S1 listing process in order to have any security and it's gonna take you months and cost you millions of dollars, um, that has to be taken away because there's so much opportunity to start creating new financial products um, that just move at a, a different different speed. So the market structure, I think, to start is going to be a little bit basic. You know, let's start to separate uh, trading and custody. Uh, I'll hit that one again, where you know you've got checks and balances between those that are providing various you know trading and and. Um, services versus how it's stored. And we start to build up the transparency there. Um, over time, you know, broker dealer types will probably unfold because unfortunately, you know, there's always bad guys out there that are trying to take advantage, right? And so the the overlay on broker dealers uh, is in large part because, you know, 
brokers left historically to themselves, nothing to do with crypto here, um, will sometimes take advantage and they'll tell one guy to, to buy it while they're selling it. Um, so you put oversight on that. I think technology is going to help a tremendous amount here. Um, we actually do have the ability to use smart contracts and on-chain technology that can basically provide the oversight, monitoring, public transparency that will be more effective, frankly, than monitoring a stockbroker's text messages and hoping that somebody figures out like what bad happened. Um, I think Just a lot of the, the chain. A, a lot of the existing um, regulations help sort out what happened after something bad happened, after somebody claims they've been ripped off, after something fails. With blockchain technology, you have the ability to make it transparent before the failure. So we can take you know a multi-billion dollar thing and turn it into like, oh, just a few people lost a small amount of money. Um, but we've got to work at it. It's going to take time. It's going to take iteration. Uh, secondly, um, the lending market. The lending market will come back when there are stable, understood risk ways to provide those products and services. Um, and until that happens, it's going to be it's going to be a limited market for sure. So, as long as there's no lending going on, it means most likely that people are still uh, uncertain about what kind of lies under the surface that hasn't been exposed yet. When the lending market starts coming back, that's when you know that people are making enough money in that process, and they're able to see kind of the risk on the other side. When it comes back, will Bitco be playing in that arena? Maybe. I mean, it's going to depend how things unfold. I think our future probably involves less of that. I could see more where other companies will be coming on top of our services and they would be providing the lending component and we might be providing the collateral management, uh, maybe the auto liquidation components, you know, some of the um, some of the parts which are around providing the risk monitoring and safety as opposed to the leverage. And then in terms of settlement, is the future of BitGo sort of like this connective tissue between markets? Um, obviously, in the wake of Signature and Silvergate um, collapsing, we, we're missing that. We're missing that sort of linkage. Yeah. Uh, well, this is what we, we have now. And uh, we're excited that you know it's starting to get a little bit of movement. Um, look, the, the Silvergate system was, uh, and the Silvergate company, they provided a great service. What they did is they, they saw a problem in the industry, which is you had 24-7 crypto markets, and then you had this 9 to 5 banking market. And unfortunately, you couldn't settle the money fast enough. And this was incredibly painful and incredibly risky for the large flows that were evolving between market makers, OTC desks, et cetera. Um, so they solved that problem by saying, hey, everybody sign up at Silvergate, and we'll let you swap between accounts 24-7. But it had you know, a couple of big flaws. I mean, first off, it's only one bank, a relatively small California State San Diego bank. Um, and then number two, it just does the fiat side. I mean, all I think of these it was trade. La Jolla? La Jolla. La Jolla. La Jolla? Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, the second thing is that they only did the fiat side. They couldn't touch like the digital asset side. Um, by the way, they were trying to figure that out for several years, but they never could quite figure out how they could touch the digital asset. And all of these trades, you know, you have Bitcoin flowing in one direction and dollars flowing in the other. Um, and yet they only saw part of it. Well, unfortunately, 
Because in here in the U.S., we didn't get our act together on the regulatory side for how banks should participate with crypto companies. We ended up with this world where a trillion dollar industry, the crypto industry, was basically entirely banked on this one little bank out of La Jolla, um, you know, Silvergate Bank. And imagine if it had been. And, you know, with all due respect, but when you say it, like in hindsight, it is pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, it certainly is, right? It's concentration risk. And, you know, we now know that like 90, 95% of the revenue that Silvergate was getting was all coming from the crypto industry. Now, another interesting thing, and, and you've heard others, you know, uh, talking about this, is that with these cash flows, it's not like banking activity. And people have been just putting their heads in the sand around what the current banks do. Um, you know, banks are depositories where if you are willing to put it with them and keep it safe with them for time, they can figure out how to make money on that behind the scenes and provide you safety and it sort of works. The crypto industry and post-trade settlement is all about moving the money back and forth. So that means 100% liquidity. And we've forgotten that our banks are not reserve banks. They are not 100% reserve. Now, by the way, a custodian? Turns out a trust company bank, qualified custody, is pretty similar to a 100% reserve bank. You give us the assets, you ask us for it back, we give it back to you. Why? Because we still have it. We don't lend it out. That's the difference between a trust company and a depository. Depository lends it out, trust companies don't. We're, we're, um, we're just safekeeping. So we had forgotten this as an industry that at the end of the day, the banks do this type of lending activity. Now, now Silvergate had a, a happy ending in that they didn't lose anybody's money, but what happened was industry got spooked and said, what if there's a bank run and what if they can't get everybody's money? And, you know, we have a pretty jittery, skeptical industry. You know, I mean, that's part of the good stuff about the crypto industry is that we're, we're second guessing, wait a minute, what are you guys really doing when you're holding these things in opaque, non-transparent ways? And so the entire industry said, you know what? We better get out of Silvergate because it might have a problem. Well, when everybody pulls out at the same time, a new problem emerges, which is Silvergate has no revenue. <laughs> Without any revenue, of course, they can't operate their business, and they had to, they had to fold. Um, so that was a concentration risk problem. The regulators could have helped by helping other banks participate. If we had had 100 banks participating with digital assets, I'm sorry, banking of digital asset companies, not even touching the digital assets yet, but if we had had that, then you know a failure on any one of those banks would have been no problem. We would have taken it in stride. Um, and you know that's where regulators really, I think, could help. How do we not just build safety around like that one Silvergate bank, but how do we build safety in that we encourage the ecosystem to kind of federate out this load a little bit? So anyway, that's one big problem with Silvergate. Obviously, that's gone. People then started moving to uh, Signature, but Signature got... I think a political hit job, uh, it, there isn't any evidence that they needed to go um, into receivership or whatnot. Um, and, uh, uh, and and that leaves a big void around, around the fiat side. So BitGo has today with the Go network, uh, maybe the finally getting to the point, uh, we have the ability to take both fiat and crypto and we do post-trade settlement. So we can see the crypto going one way, the fiat coming the other way. And we're not a bank, so we don't just put it in one bank. Um, we put it in a series of banks. We've currently got six online. It's growing to 10 in the very near future. And these are not banks for our balance sheet. These are banks for that, that take funds for benefit of our clients. And then we have policies, which is we won't put 
assets into any single bank such that we would ever have more than 10% of that bank's assets. We don't want that, right? Because that's back to the that's back to the Silvergate failure, right? We want to make sure that it's distributed. And, you know, as we've been talking with clients about this, and you get up to seven banks, they're having the same problems getting banking relationships. So they look at Bitco and they're like, wow, you're, you're really well covered today. And if we can just make that stronger, then, okay, people can put their fee out with us. We can manage that component. Now, by the way, the ultimate goal right now is to get it off of the banking system altogether. Crypto customers want 100% liquidity all the time. Um, the banks still don't have that. When you put it into a bank, they need to figure out how to make money, right? So what are they going to do? Um, they don't have a lot of options. Some of them have, as you know, underwater um, uh, T-bills um, that they bought. <laughs> uh, and, and we're expecting that there's probably more banking failures around that. So like just getting it out of the banking system for this type of liquid uh, is the right way to go. There's a few options coming that, that will make that, that better. And then the second thing, of course, we do, we've been doing crypto. We specialize in that 100% cold storage. You can now keep your assets in 100% qualified custody the entire duration of the life cycle of going into crypto, trading it, and coming out of crypto. Um, and then inside of Bitco, you can do post-trade settlement um, where it never has to leave qualified custody, even when interacting with fiat. There's the pr proposition there for you, folks. Um, okay, Mike, final word. Um, there's been two deals that have fallen through, Prime Trust, Galaxy. What happened and where do you go from here? Well, let's see. These are two different things. So, so Galaxy... Um, you know, Galaxy could not get through the SEC process here in the U.S. Um, in last year, I guess it was. Um, you know, the SEC was not allowing any of the companies that had had filed to either go public or despac. Uh, there were about five or six of them, and that was just again the the regulators kind of holding things up. Um, so, you know, I think if you spoke with, with Mike Novogratz over at, at Galaxy, he'd tell you basically the same story. Um, and that's unfortunate because I think we had a real opportunity to go do something really meaningful um, kind of in terms of building like a, a very strong institutional player um, that had you know, technology and custody and balance sheet and trading. It, it had a lot, a lot of good opportunity. All right. So that was one thing. Look, the regulations weren't ready. I'm optimistic that what's happening right now is going to make it so that next year, whoever it is that's going through that process from the crypto side is going to have a success. Um, the second thing is uh, Prime Trust. Look, we... We got called in to uh, see if Prime Trust was an interesting acquisition target. You know, pretty late. Um, unfortunately, they've uh, they, they've run out of money, and the the problems are are, are pretty severe. Uh, it, it's unfortunate that uh, kind of the timing is so late. We did not have a full um, signed deal. Um, what happened here was actually we just had a, a letter of intent. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, kind of in diligence here, it, it's just clear that um, we we can't we can't do that deal. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Deal making is a thorny process. It's a thorny process. Mike Belshi, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. We'll see you great again soon. And the scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.
All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.